Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 89th episode of the Truth Island podcast. If there is one thing that we can say with a certain degree of certainty, it's that life continues to move forward and become ever more increasingly complex. The world has not just grown complex in the fields of science and technology, but also within the realm of ideas. Many theories have emerged attempting to provide a coherent narrative to many of the thoughts or phenomena that we currently experience. Ideas such as capitalism, socialism, Christianity, Buddhism, etc., attempt to provide the subscriber with a series of all-encompassing answers which exist within a given framework of understanding. However, while each of these ideas may contain certain degrees of virtue, each system is not without its flaws. We as humans, to make sense of the world, often adapt labels so that we may conveniently bucket each of these complicated series of ideas into a digestible form that allows for an easier way of understanding the world. Labels, on one hand, allow us as humans to convey ideas and thoughts to one another without having to write a dissertation in doing so. However, as the world becomes more interconnected and complicated, many of these labels often become restrictive and binding. Take, for example, the word artist. Depending on the time and the context, this word can mean everything from being a skilled painter, musician, writer, or even an actor. However, the original meaning of this word once referred to someone of a skilled craft. At one point, the word artist even included practicing physicians. Given that labels vary so greatly, given the context and time in which they are used, one might ask, are they even necessary anymore? Labels might also force us as individuals to develop a certain degree of tribalism or apprehensiveness to new ideas, as once a label comes to intertwine itself with one's identity, it becomes increasingly difficult to denounce old ideas without removing a piece of oneself. Joining me to help understand what value labels might still play in our world, I am joined by Evan. Evan, tell me why I shouldn't just rip off all the labels on my cans of soup. <laughs> um, well, because that's yeah, that's a great question, but and and it's because you uh, then you wouldn't know what you're eating. <laughs> that's so true. Um, man, I, uh, I I love this. I love this. So I guess I should say I encountered your show, and I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. One of the things that I find very interesting about this program is there is, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a root assumption here about, about you've talked often, I think, about no man's land and, and about trying to stake out uh, a dangerous middle ground. And I think that's a fascinating proposition. And it, it's one that at times I think I've, I've taken issue with. And, so, and, and you and I got to discuss it a little bit before here. And so I'm very glad that, uh, that you brought me on here to expand on it. So thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. One of the things I'm really hoping we get to talk about today is about this idea of, uh, of you know, do, do labels lock you in? Are, are labels limiting or are labels, in fact, you know, the, the engines which have, which have driven society forward? Is it, can you make progress without them? I'm going to argue today that you can't. I'm going to argue today that, that the idea of, of saying, well, I'm not this and I'm not that and trying to stake out somewhere in the center is, is in fact harmful. And I'm going to try to make a case against centrism. And, and the three points I think that I'll try to, to make uh, drive home the hardest, and, and there might be others, uh, but I would argue that centrism doesn't make you independent. And I think lots of times centrists would like to consider themselves independent. And I don't think centrism accomplishes that. The, the second one I'll, I'll, I want to get into is, is that I don't think embracing an ideological position uh, negates your curiosity or negates independent thought. 
And the third one I, I want to get into is, is that I don't know that, uh, that it's possible to, to really make a difference as a centrist. Okay. I, li I like, I want to start first off with the idea of being a centrist, right? Mm -hmm. And th this, this idea that has been interpreted, well, the answer is always in the middle, right? It's the median. It's always the meat. The answer is always the median. And I actually think that sometimes extreme viewpoints of view are needed. Okay. Like I, I actually am in agreement with you and I wouldn't consider myself to be a centrist. However, I'm more of a pendulum. I'm more, I vacillate quite a bit in my, in my thought pattern. And, and that vacillation occurs depending on the context of what's going on around me. So I, I, I think that um, anyone who says, well, I'm just stuck in the middle, right? Because if we, if we think about it, it's like, depending on how far the, first off, the middle changes over time, right? What like what's the middle today Absolutely. may not necessarily have been the middle 50 years ago, right? So I, I think to just stay, you know, to, to, to dig your feet in the middle is probably not a good idea. But I think that a fair amount of exploration and pivoting is what's needed. I I don't disagree with that, but I but I think I, I think that there one of the problems with, with this idea of, of we should always keep exploring every single thing is is it it sort of negates this idea that we could ever answer a question. And certainly uh, there are moral and philosophical and political questions to which we have found answers. You know, should we keep slaves? Should women be allowed to vote? Should gay people enjoy the benefits of marriage? These were all things that, that at various times, you know, were controversial issues and somebody pushing the, uh, an answer to those questions would have been seen as a radical. And today we accept those as the bare minimum for, for participation in, in basic democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important that we should not be like uncovering regressive ideas or ideas that have been proven to, to be false. I, I do think that as humanity moves forward, what becomes gray and what becomes unknown changes. And that's that's where I kind of think, think that ideological positioning becomes a very dangerous area. When we, when we look at the past, it's very easy to say, well, that was right or that was wrong or, yeah. or that's on the wrong side of history. It's really impossible to do that with the present and future. It becomes really, really difficult to know just exactly where, where, what is the right answer moving forward. And that's where I think exploration is kind of a beautiful thing and a much needed thing. This is where I think we're going to find some disagreement because okay. I, I think we are, we are so far advanced in, in democracy, in, uh, in society. We're 10,000 years into this experiment in, in civilization. And I think at this course, at this point in history, we have really good, uh, a really good backlog of lessons, a really good backlog that we can look into and say, okay, what was right then? And, and when they face similar problems to the problems we face, how did they find an answer and what was the right answer there? I, I think that, that, and this is why I, I, I'm not ashamed to, to apply labels and, and, and take labels from the past and apply them to myself today, is because they were right, right? The abolitionists were right, and the women's suffragists were right. And so when we face similar problems today, we say, how should we answer this? I think it's, it's helpful and, and maybe even necessary to look at the past and, and to wrap ourselves in those intellectual traditions from the past and carry them forward and keep moving on them. Now, we spoke originally offline about the idea of being like an abolitionist or a suffragist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're in agreement that the, you know, abolishing of slavery is a wondrous thing, like where there's absolutely no doubt about it. But one thing I kind of wanted to dig into is like when someone called themselves, let's say, an abolitionist during that time period, 
that label also came with a lot of packaging, right? And the abolitionists, as you probably know, were a part of like a group called the Radical Republicans, and they may have had stances on tariffs and other and states' rights and all this other stuff that kind of got downloaded with the idea of being an abolitionist, which we both agree is a very, you know, wondrous, wondrous thing. I'm wondering if I, if we, let's say we rewind the clock and we're in the year, you know, 1855 and slavery is still on the table. What is so wrong, Evan, with just being like, hey, from a moral perspective, I see that the, you know, abolishing slavery is a wondrous thing. I can totally get on board with that. Why do I necessarily have to take the label of, of, of everything else that might come with that? Because something like tariffs might actually fluctuate. You know, sometimes having high tariffs is positive and, and then and other times it's really negative to have high tariffs. So I'm wondering why we always have to take, you know, I, I think with labels, we sometimes have to take other parts of that package that we don't necessarily agree with or may not be right for all, you know, for all eternity. This is a great question, but I think we're confusing some of these labels here. So I think when we're talking about something like abolition or suffrage or, or one of these, we're talking about something with a very clear goal, a very thing that, that right, you can draw a line in the sand and it's very easy to understand. Do, are you, are you, do you support the abolition of slavery or do you not? Political parties, I think, even though they, they do make ideological cases in a lot of times, and even that's a, kind of a new development, you know, that's, there are still places in the world where you go and, and political parties aren't, are, are still just kind of patronage, patronage networks and not exactly ideological. But in America, we do have this ideological tradition that the parties, you know, somewhat adhere to. But political parties, I, I, I would not make the case that, that those are the, the sort of line in the sand sort of things. They are, right, they are, they are alliances, strategic alliances between people with different goals, different political and economic and social goals and these sorts of things. So, so I would say, it, I, I would have that same problem you're having. I would say, why do I have to believe, have a stance on tariffs to be an abolitionist? I would say you don't have to, right? I would say, and, and today there are, there are people who, uh, prison abolition is probably a, you know, a nice continuation of, of that movement. And I'm sure there are prison abolitionists who have differing views on, on taxes and, and all sorts of other you know, issues. But, uh, but on the issue of, of prison abolition, people have a, a, you know, a, a pretty, it, it's a pretty clear goal. Right. So I want to, like, thinking about even um, the slavery abolitionist movement, the abolitionists were not a single monolith. For example, there were some abolitionists who thought, let's just end slavery, but that's it. No equal rights, just it's slavery is over, but there's still going to be segregation. Um, blacks are not equal to whites. So there were, mm -hmm. there was that type of abolitionist. And then mm -hmm. I think there was... Um, another type of abolitionist who thought full equality, full equality across the board. And this is where even, even if you call yourself under the label of an abolitionist, there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a mm -hmm. lot of grayness and there's a lot of details that need to be parsed out. And that's why the word abolitionist in itself can be very confusing because it's like, well, what type of abolitionist are you? And I think I think if we fast forward and use the prison abolitionist kind of model, right? Mm -hmm. Those same that those those same questions begin to emerge. Well, what kind of prison abolitionist are you? Do you believe that someone can murder another person and walk free? Are you that extreme that there should be zero prisons? Do you think that our prisons should be more rehabilitative and follow the Nordic model kind of prison abolition? So even when you call yourself a prison abolitionist, that begets a thousand and one questions as to what exactly you mean by that label. 
there you know what there is some some truth to that absolutely uh but i think that's one of the things this and and to, this is you're 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 getting into my second point for me so thank you which is that applying a label to yourself or, or putting your own actions in concert with a movement does not negate independence or curiosity right because because you might have to answer those questions you're talking about right now the last movie i saw in theaters before before the theaters shut down was <laughs> uh was little women and uh, so I was reading about afterwards, I was reading about Louisa May Alcott because I wasn't that familiar with her. And uh, I was reading about her father, who was an abolitionist and who was, I think, maybe a, a Quaker, perhaps. I, 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 this was back in March or February. Yeah, Quakers but, uh, were very good, right? They, they, oh, were, yeah. very, they were very awesome. <laughs> but, but he was ostracized from his community because just, just as you're saying, he wanted to educate his children alongside free, free Blacks. And his community said, oh, no, no, that's too far. That's too far. And they, they tried to stake out a position that was, you know, not, not so far. And now in, in, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can very easily say, oh, well, that was wrong. They were, they were absolutely wrong about that. And so that's, that's what I talk about. I talk about what can we learn from history and what can we learn from these, from, from people who also donned uh, the labels of, of intellectual traditions that we want to continue. Uh, when I look at that, it, it, the lesson that I take is, you know, it, these arbitrary lines in the sand are, are, are just that. But, you know, if let's just say that we were to implement something like prison abolition, right, we mm -hmm. would really have to ask those difficult questions of like, what exactly do you mean? Do you mean that we focus more on rehab or do you literally mean there's no more prisons. And, and then like, this is where I think that we should just be focusing on the idea itself and we should be very precise in our language. And this is kind of where I think labels fall into a danger because let's say I identify as a prison abolitionist, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now that, that label is not highly precise. And because that label is not highly precise, one, it makes me extremely vulnerable to attack because then people are going to be like, oh, well, this you believe that criminals should just run wild, right? And it actually hurts your cause in a way because if you just say, I'm a prison abolitionist without actually specifying the details as to what you mean, people are going to start attacking you and be like, well, well what, what does the world look like? Whereas if you actually remove that label and say, hey, I believe that prisons need to be reformed and have a blah, blah, blah model of rehabilitation and so forth. I think that actually invites discourse and it actually invites dialogue. Whereas if you just go with, I'm a pr prison abolitionist, you're going to get attacked because people aren't gonna necessarily one, take the time to understand what you mean. And two, you may not even have taken the time to understand what you mean by that. So I, I disagree there okay. because in the one, I don't think whether, whether you say I'm a prison abolitionist or whether you say uh, I'm a person who, who questions whether or not we need prisons, right? Whether you apply the label or not, you can still have a conversation with somebody, right? You can still, somebody says, well, what is a prison abolition? What does that mean? What does that look like? And you still get to flesh out your position and just as you could if you, if you go the other route. But, but the difference between them, the reason why it's stronger to, to adopt the thing and more necessary is that without without label without you know committing yourself to the goal to the point that you that you are willing to call yourself that you don't really have the ability to to make change you don't really have the ability to affect the outcome and I'll give you an example Dr King made his his name as an anti-racist he was a, he was he was perhaps the greatest anti-racist activist that that the world will ever see at the end of his career he started going into anti-imperialism and he tried to tie his anti-racist work to anti-imperialism. And that was controversial, right? A lot of people in his anti-racist movement opposed that addition. 
with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of people who, who, who remain active in anti-racism today have since embraced anti-imperialism as well, right? And, they, and they, there's a huge overlap now between anti-racism and anti-imperialism. That's, that's due to King, right? Not exclusively due to King, but, but it wouldn't have happened or, or it would have happened much slower without King. That can only happen because King had his bona fides, right? As, as an anti-racist. If King, had, if King had sat on the sidelines and, and shouted to the people marching past him on the street saying, we should also fight anti-imperialism, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have cared and nor should they. That's not how change happens. Now I hear what you're saying, but I think when, doc, when Dr. King was speaking about imperialism, he was specifically referring to the Vietnam War. And I think that in that, in that instance, I'm sure he gave wonderful reasons as to why the Vietnam War was a huge mistake. He didn't just necessarily give a blanket statement of like, I'm anti-imperialism. He actually gave like a long list as to why the conflict in Vietnam was a huge disaster, which is awesome. I think that's a great thing to do. And I think that's how you change people's mind. But I think that that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of long drawn out discussions. And I don't know because if Dr. King had been, you know, uh, pro-civil rights and then he just offhandedly said, oh, I'm also anti-imperialist, FYI, Mm -hmm. and just walked away and did not really explain each of those bullets very thoroughly, well, that would have led to a lot of confusion. So I think that what's better than just having a label of being anti-imperialist is picking a specific example and then specifically explaining why that thing is wrong and how it needs to be changed. I don't think that that applying a label negates that though, right? I I don't think, if you want to talk about... I guess the, the tactical ways of, of messaging, I could see that it's saying, oh, some people are turned off by this word or that word. I could see that. But I, I don't think that including that, that, that contextualizing your position in an intellectual tradition that stretches back, you know, however far, or, or one that's just being born, I, I don't think that, uh, that that negates you doing exactly what you're describing. That, that, that I don't think King would say, I'm an anti-imperialist and I'm not going to say another word on the subject and I won't tell you why, we sh- why Vietnam's a bad idea. I think, I think the two are mutual. Well, let me give you an example of someone else who used a label for most of their life. And that person was actually Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. And he called himself a pacifist. You know, this was the label that he, he loved, he said. And he, you know, and bear in mind, you know, Einstein's coming up in Germany after World War I. Mm-hmm. He's seen all sorts of crazy stuff. And he used the word pacifist. I'm a pacifist. And you know, he said, you know, you know, Einstein actually, you know, hated political parties and, and did not like getting involved in politics. But the one certainty that he thought that he had was pacifism, that all wars could be avoided, no doubt. However, you know, when he had to flee from Germany and then his, you know, childhood home and all this other stuff was completely ransacked by the Nazis and so forth, even he was like, man there's no label in this world that's 100% certain. Like I, I thought I could call myself a pacifist, but then the Nazis came and they, to- they totally showed me otherwise. So that's kind of where I get scared with any type of label because there'll always be some type of future occurrence that you're, that's unknown or unforeseen to you that might just take that label and turn it upside down. Uh, interesting. I mean, listen, any ideology, an ideology is is a way of, of ordering facts about the world to tell a narrative, right? To tell a coherent story. And the world does not like, you're right, being contained. It does not like being put in an order. And, it, and, and when you try to order it, it does fight that. And I think any ideology probably grown, grown you know, when, as it gets a kind of mission creep to it, it's gonna produce these kinds of contradictions, sure. 
but I, I don't think that, uh, but again, that's, that's something I think when we're talking about the levels of a political party or a religion, right? These things that are, that are not necessarily a, a, an ideology, but more these sorts of tactical alliances or, or social forces on, unto themselves. I, I, don't, I don't see the kinds of contradictions that the abolition or women's suffrage could, uh, could produce, right? I don't, I don't see that happening. Pacifism, I, I, sure, I, I understand the, the problem there. Einstein also was proud to call himself a socialist, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a one that, uh, that can produce its own sorts of contradictions too. But he, he uh, I, I don't know that he, that he shied away from that. I mean, like if we were having this podcast, let's say in the 1920s or 30s, mm-hmm. you know, it, it would be very tempting to become Aaron. You saw World War One, right? You saw what a disaster that was, like guys lost their legs and all of this. It's, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that, that pacifism is the way forward? And it would kind of look like that, wouldn't it? It would really, really look like that. But that's why I always like to have... I don't ever want to fully give myself to anything because I always like that little room, that little margin of error for skepticism. And I think that really, it, it, you know, if there's one thing I figured out about us humans is that we've got to be very adaptable. Like this world is changing very quickly and things happen very rapidly. And even if you're kind of dragging your foot for just a second too long, it might be a second too late. And that's why I think that when you have, when you don't have these labels, you can really respond a lot quicker to what's going on around you. I think a label causes a, a, a more delayed reaction because if you were carrying the pacifism label, well, then that's kind of delaying your reaction time to what's going on around you. So I, I think that labels carry the danger of making you slower in some way. It's, it's interesting, but it's, it's also, it, it also kind of, get, kind of gets back to, to some of the things we, we've talked about already in, in, in this. So if you are a pacifist, if you hold yourself to be a pacifist, if that's a belief that is dear to you, right? Then it's not something that should be abandoned, right? If, if, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not waiting on Einstein in World War II. I'm just talking in the abstract here that, uh, if you're not a pacifist when it's difficult to be a pacifist, then you're probably not really a pacifist. And for me, I don't know that, that the keeping the label of an intellectual tradition slows reaction time. If anything, I think it informs it and could make it faster. There is so, there's so much that, that, uh, there is so much that has precedent in history. Uh, you and I have lived through an incredible communications revolution uh, that has that has upended political systems and and ideologies and and relationships and marriages and and all these sorts of things. And it's it's easy for us to say, "Wow, like that's that's a new one." But there are there are precedents for this, right? What what happened uh, with the Gutenberg printing press in some ways is is the forebear, you know, caused caused kind of the similar disruptions to what you and I have seen these last uh, fifteen years now. So I I don't know. So so I don't know that there is any harm. In fact, I think there's great gain to to saying I'm a secular humanist in that sort of situation saying, I took the lessons that, that from Gutenberg and I took the lessons from the last time society was disrupted this way. And I have, I have ordered those facts into a, a way that tells the coherent story about the, the world. And I'm gonna take those lessons and apply those, those to my present situation. And I don't know, certainly, certainly there's nothing, you don't have to call yourself a secular humanist to pick up a book and read about secular humanism and do these sorts of things. But I don't know that there's any harm in learning from history and saying, yeah, there was a right answer back then, and I'm gonna and I'm and I'm gonna 
keep that those lessons and uh, and embrace them. Oh man, well let me just say you would actually love the series I do on this show about the Roman Empire because that's all <laughs> all me and my uh, Roman Empire expert Brett do is we look at Rome and be like that's just like the U.S. and we go back and forth and back and forth and it's it's really helpful and I I, I think there's great value in what you're saying about looking at history and making mm-hmm. these comparisons. However. I never dive in hook, line, and sinker and say, yes, like this, this is, this is predictive. Like, I think that's like, we can learn from history and, and take lessons and be like, well, this is similar. This is like this, this, this has semblance of this, and this is what happens here, but I'm never going to just completely be like, well, with 100% certainty, it will work out this way because it's just like what happened in Rome. And I think that presents as danger when we look at history and say, well, this event in the future is identical because no two data points in history are identical. Similar comparisons. Hey, I mean, you know, I, if, you know I'm with you there, man. I, I love talking to historians. But that's where I kind of say, if no two data points in history are identical to one another, then we always have to be using the noggin and constantly reevaluating the playing field at every given moment. From from, and I, I would say this happens n- not just even on a year. This happens on a daily basis. Like we have to reassess what we're doing on a on a daily hour by hour moment of what we think is the right thing to do. And th- and this this comes down to a philosophical idea of like what is right or what is correct. And I do I do think that there are viewpoints which are correct, but that varies almost on a daily, yearly basis of uh, based on the new information that's kind of coming in. Let me ask you this, because this is something I've I've been I've been trying to puzzle over. But you have you have beliefs, you have, you have moral beliefs and and political beliefs and and ethical beliefs. Is there are you able to take action on those beliefs? Can you march? Can you what, talk to me about this? Absolutely. You know, I think that I can take action based on my beliefs. However, one of the premises I talk about in the early versions of the show is the idea of virtue. And virtue is, is like the highest. These are your principles. These are the things that kind of govern. This comes back to the ideas of Plato. And for Plato, he believes that the highest virtue of a society is justice. So everything that you do in this world has to reflect justice. So you could say that, oh, justice is my highest virtue. For other people, it might be compassion. You know, so everyone has their own sense of what their highest virtue is. What justice looks like varies depending on information. So we might think that, you know, if we were living in Hammurabi's time, an eye for an eye, well, that's justice, right? We're taking Plato's concept of justice and you poke out my eye and now I poke out your eye. However, as we evolve and as our our, our knowledge increases, our concept of justice or an application of justice begins to change over time. So my idea is that I have virtues that I can act upon. I, I'm not one of these philosophers that just sits and drinks tea and says, oh, you know, away with the world. You know, like I don't just look out my window with scorn and like be like, oh, the, 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 the plebeians down there, they don't know. No, I'm, not, I'm not one of those ivory tower kind of guys. I do think that we have a commitment to action. But I think it requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of serious dialogue and it requires a lot of soul searching. And, you know, I, I, I categorize myself as a philosopher and, and philosophers get a really bad rap as being extremely lazy and not doing anything, right? Like that's the classic stereotype <laughs> of a philosopher is you're lazy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We do move. Philosophers do move and do take action but we like to talk about things at a very deep level and make sure that what it is that we are fighting for is absolutely true for for that moment. And 
when someone, when, when, when new information comes in, we might pivot our strategy depending on, on the way new information takes us. So, so that, that's a good answer. So can you then, can you take action in concert with other people? If, if other, if you, if other people, other philosophers, let's say, all come to the same conclusion, maybe not all, that'll never happen. But if, <laughs> but if, if enough of them come to the same conclusion, you see guys say, okay, let's do this. We're all going to take action to demand X, Y, or Z. Can you do that? Can you take action as a group? And, and as a group, can you, can you give that, that, that movement a name? Can you give it, can you put an ism on the end of it? I, so I, I did discuss this on a previous episode, and I, I discussed this with uh, with my colleague Claire, and we said the best thing to do is to form alliances, not not necessarily coalitions, but alliances. And the best comparison that we came up with uh, was World War II, the alliance between you know the Soviet Union and the United States to defeat Germany. Mm-hmm. Now, in an alliance system, Evan. The U.S. does not become more like the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union does not become more like the U.S. They don't adapt, you know, each other's ideology. They don't mix or whatever. They have their core tenets, their core virtues and principles, but then they act in concert with one another to defeat a greater evil. So in this, in my, in my system, if there's a cause that I'm really liking and there's a cause that I feel is truthful, I may form an alliance with, with people who are of that similar cause, but I am not going to basically allow my identity to become diluted by working with those people. We may have an exchange of ideas and they might prove things to me and I might change my mind like, hey, you've changed my mind, sir. You know, awesome. I, I now think of the world this way and so forth. However, I think in these alliance systems, it's important to maintain your core principles and virtues on other issues that you may have formulated, but then you can work with other people on resolving that one specific task. Oh, I, I disagree completely, man. Respectfully, respectfully. Okay, I man. Compl- no, I completely disagree here. So I I think, uh, okay. So for one, for one, okay. Just, just to go with this analogy, uh, the only reason this analogy is popular or, or is possible, the only reason that you can talk about, you know, a, a military alliance between states uh, is because we have states and militaries, right? And we had we had these entities exist. And the only reason these entities exist is because we have people who were statists and we have people who were abolitionists and we have people who were socialists. And we have these people who who committed themselves to movements, who acted in concert with other people, and they created the United States and the Soviet Union and they created Germany and they created militaries and they created all these things. Uh, these wouldn't exist if people on, on an individual level had held the rules that I, that I think you're proposing. And, and another thing, this idea that that by committing myself to a movement or to a label that's shared by other people, that I'm somehow sullying my my individual uh, intellect, I think is is way off the mark. If anything, if anything, the, the so much of the things that we love about the world have been produced by people who were acting in concert towards a shared goal. I just think about just think about the uh, the songs that the the spiritual songs that were sung on the Underground Railroad or. Uh, or, or chants in March, some of the chants that, that we hear today at protests, you know, have long histories through the civil rights era. And that's, that's not, that's not a, nobody was sullied, I think, by chanting the same thing and by, or by creating these songs to sing with, with people, you know, marching up the, the, uh, or any of these, right? I, I think, uh, no, no, I think, I think by acting in concert, 
it with people and by committing ourselves to the same goals and, and shared struggles, uh, I think that's when we can create something really beautiful, something that, that we might even call culture. Uh, yeah. I, I think, look, there's nothing, again, like I, I agree with you with the working in concert, but like to use another analogy, let's just take a look at, you know, the, the American Revolution, for example, okay? Mm -hmm. All of the founding fathers are acting in concert to defeat Great Britain and, and to form the United States, right? So they're in agreement and they're coming up with wonderful catchphrases and they're, you know, sort of in, you know, they're in arms with one another. But then, you know, revolution ends, and now you all of a sudden have the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, and they're going at each other. So that's like an example where, okay, we're putting our differences aside and forming a common alliance. But once this alliance has no, has, you know, like once the purpose of that alliance is no more, I'm going to then go, I'm going to kind of sulk back into my original ideas. Now, you have every right to argue with me and convince me otherwise, and I'm totally capable of changing. However, I'm not going to, we're not going to just, you know, like mesh completely into, into something that, that, that is, you know, that, that hasn't been proven to be 100% fully true at that point. It's like, it's like one step at a time. It's like, we form this alliance. If you want more from me, if you want to drag me to the next step, you got to convince me, you got to put in the hard work. You got to have, you got to write the federalist papers. You got to, you got to have these meaningful exchanges to get me to the next level. It's not going to just kind of organically happen through osmosis. Well, what's what's funny? So, so I'm loath to to apply any of my arguments to to political parties or, or religions, right? Because that's because I think that scale is just too big, and I think there's there's too much going on there. Uh, it ceases to be about ideology at that point. But that said, I still think it's interesting that that even the one you're describing, right, where they did exactly that, where they said, okay, our alliance is over, uh, and we're and and so now you know it's every man for himself. <laughs> even then, that government failed, right? The first government of this country which ascribed to the rules that you are describing did not work and they had to rewrite the whole damn thing. Uh, I, so, so I think that, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not going to apply it to, to, to politics, but I, or at least to parties, but I, but it's, it's funny to me that even then it, it doesn't work. I, I don't know, man. I, I think there's something to this. <laughs> I mean, like, let me, if we think about, I think you're referring to like the Articles of Confederation, right? Mm -hmm. So like, the, you know, mm -hmm. they form the Articles of Confederation. So that's an example of like the greater enemy right now is Great Britain, right? Like, so that's that, that's mm -hmm. like the, the, the operating system of like, that is the greater enemy. Once greater enemy has been defeated, well, it, it seems that this, this makeshift, you know, um, what we call, let's say, a constitution written on a napkin, right? That's what the Article of Confederation was. It was just like, you know, like this will be the interim thing. We don't, and then, and then what's important though, is I think in the aftermath of the revolution that those important discussions about states' rights and federalism and anti-federalism, it's, it's kind of, and, and the idea of a national bank, it's kind of good that we went through all of this, these growing pains, right? I think the growing pains is positive because there could have been like, all right, let's just adopt a federal, you know, like the federal system, let's not think twice about it. But the arguing, the, the arguing, Evan, is what makes things work. It actually, it's all of the debates, it's all of the dissent, it's all of the pain, it's all of the like three hour NPR broadcasts that <laughs> actually make things work because life is so, it, life is just so complicated that, and I, I try and tell people this on this podcast all the time, no issue is going to be solved by a meme. Nothing is, nothing in this world is going to be solved by a meme. Everything is going to be exhausting and taxing. 
and that's just the game of life. And, and that's why I think it's so important to, to not, to not just fall into labels and, 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 and like, be like, yes, I am, you know, you know, you know, a prison abolitionist or whatever. You know, I'm like, what does that mean? You can't, you can't solve it that easily. It takes a lot of work and you got to put it in my friend. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I just don't think that, uh, I, I wish, I wish it was the case that I, that somebody could get up, I could get up and say, I'm a prison abolitionist and just wipe my hands and be like, <laughs> well, that settles that. I wish that was it. Uh, but the truth is, and, and, and this is, this is something that is so true. I think of, of any sort of leftist movement, right. But go to, go to any leftist meeting on any issue and you're going to hear arguments, right. You're going to hear, I wish that, that people could just, that we could just get unified and just every, okay, we're all, that's it guys. No more meeting. I'll see you guys at the rally at the protest. And then we'll just keep doing that. And then day is done, but no, no, every, every, the, the left is, is consumed by infighting on, on literally every issue. I saw, I, I read an account of a activist in the eighties, I think who successfully banned nuclear power, right? In the US, we haven't had a new nuclear power plant built in, in I think since you and I were kids. And I read an account by, and, and this isn't, I know people feel differently about nuclear power today and I'm not getting into that one right now, but, I, but what, what I thought was fascinating about their account of it was they were, you know, they were trying to organize one of these things that has a very clear line in the sand goal. But even then, they said their meetings were, were they, it was impossible to get anything done because people would get up and they say, we're not going to be able to do this until we defeat patriarchy. We're not going to be able to do this until we, until we defeat X, Y, or Z. And, and there were, there was the, the left is fractious, right? And, and even when you draw a very simple goal, uh, it, it, it's fractious. And, and the fractitious, excuse me. Uh, and, and so it's, and, and I'm not, this isn't to knock intersectionality i think i think one of the better time better things about our time is we're finally understanding at a, at a broad scale how all these things fit together and feed into each other i think that's wonderful i just know that that it's i i if if what you're saying is that you know by by putting a label on yourself you're committing yourself to the end of thinking and the end of debate and the end of all this stuff i don't see that i i almost wish that were the case like like let's take the idea of of like you know eliminating nuclear energy or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I think if someone just said, I'm, I want to abolish nuclear energy, then someone, someone else would come and have a thought, well, you know, how about in this context? What if this nuclear uh, plant over here is environmentally safe and so mm -hmm. forth, right? Whereas you set your original proposition, your original statement or your original label was, I want to abolish nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And then what, what, what we find out is that after three hours, it's like, oh, wait a minute, you don't really want to abolish nuclear energy. You just want nuclear energy to operate in this very safe environmental way. And that that's, that's kind of where the, it's like, it's creating like an unneeded tension. You know, if you look at the, if you look at the titles of all my episodes, I always ask them usually in the form of a question, like what is the correct balance or how do we do this? And I feel like when I use words like how or why or the correct balance, it always it always invites the possibility that I'm wrong. It always invites the possibility that the like the most extreme version of that of that solution is not necessarily the correct solution and so forth. Whereas the label usually implies the absolute, you know, the most extreme version of that solution. Nuclear, you know, getting rid of nuclear energy. That's a very extreme concept. So I think that when we kind of abandon the labels and we kind of just phrase all of these questions as hows and whys and ifs and so's and how much, now we actually get to like something that's closer to the truth. And I think that a lot of people like labels is because they sound really sexy. 
Like I think, <laughs> I think people love labels because they're, you know, they're sexy as hell. And I get that, but I'm making the argument that sometimes you don't want to be the sexy girl. Sometimes you want to be the girl that reads a lot of books and, and like is going to talk about things for hours and hours and hours. I, well, if, if, <laughs> if people, if people who labeled themselves didn't talk for hours and hours and hours, that'd be something, but that's never been my experience. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I, I don't think, well, I, I don't know if labels are sexy. Maybe they're sexy. Some are sexy. I don't know if they're all sexy. But even <laughs> if they are sexy, that's not necessarily a bad thing. As long as, as, long as they include a, a, what, what you're discussing, right? right? Research and, and debate and these sorts of things, which I don't think they preclude. And, and I, don't think, I don't think that there's anything in labels. And I should say nuclear energy is, is different than most of the ones we've all, all we've been discussing otherwise, right? Cause nuclear there's, there's science in there. There's, there's logistics in there. That's not the case with abolition. That's not the case with women voting, right? That's the, those, those are, are the sorts of labels that, that I think are, that I don't think there should be, we should have any issue donning. I get, I get nuclear energy. A lot of people are just going to say, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I, I, and that that's right. That's fine. That's a separate thing than what we're discussing. So, but I, I don't see uh, I, I don't see labels as, as an impediment to debate. If they're sexy, I think that's a that's a good thing. I think that's a good way to to get people to understand their own actions as as part of a larger whole, which is the only way that, that we ever create change at the kind of levels that we need it to happen at. I, I think that but that sexiness co- you know comes at the cost of misunderstanding. And I, I think that, that 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 that's one of the penalties you pay. Now I might just be an odd bird, but if if I saw two guys, one guy's like, I'm prison abolition, and then another guy was like, I believe in a series of reforms to correct the prison system in America, I would actually listen to the guy who's the latter guy who's who's you know has a long, a long little speech to give on how he thinks that prison should be reformed, because I feel like that person is putting in the work in actually figuring out what exactly is wrong, what exactly needs to be fixed, and it, it could it, it could swing, it could go back. Whereas I think the person who outwardly says, I wish that prisons are abolished, there might be a deeper thesis behind what they're saying. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you you've basically you you've kind of used a false label. And the false label is that prisons should be abolished right and that's a very striking a very a very like firework it's like a, like a, a firework going up in the sky it captures your attention good or bad right like good or bad it, it captures people's intention but then when you actually talk to them you're like well that's not really what you meant that's that that your your label and what you're actually saying are kind of in disagreement with one another and i tend not to trust those people as much because they kind of use the firework to get my attention and be like look how outrageous look how sexy my label is and then i actually talk with them and i'm like well your label and your core principles over here don't really are not really in agreement and that 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 at least makes you know i think that that person's kind of using a form of deception they're using a label to get my attention and then and then the underlying tenets of what they believe in kind of contradict the label itself well but you're we're talking about a hypothetical argument here right you're there's an assumption in here that you think a prison abolitionist is going to say i'm a prison abolitionist and then detail something besides that or or won't detail something at all. Somebody could very easily say, I'm a prison abolitionist, and here are all the reasons why, and here are all the reasons why society would be better if we did anything but this, right? But I'm really curious. I mean, talk how would have this how would this have worked in 1850? Right? Where you had somebody where we find ourselves very similar. Somebody there were people who said, Don't, don't end slavery, reform it. 
you know, uh, fewer whippings or, or things like that. And they're ultimately we we found that they were wrong, right? They 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 launched great uh, op eds, I'm sure, in the New York Times. They detailed things. I just read an op ed from the, from when Link, in the New York Times from when Lincoln got elected, and they said as soon as Lincoln gets into office, he needs to put aside these abolitionists, right? They said they are they are taking things too far. They are they are really hindering change. We really need we really need he really needs to just break with these abolitionists. Like so so talk to me about how this would have worked in 1850, where where you have somebody who says abolish slavery, and then you have some people who are enumerating ways that you can moderate or reform slavery. I think I think one of the the, the and I want to give abolitionists a huge credit is that abolitionists meant exactly what they meant, right? Like if you talk to an abolitionist and said, uh, "What do you mean by abolish slavery?" They were like, "Just as it says, ju ju just as you're hearing." And I'm like, "Okay, that makes a lot of sense." If I talk to let's say a prison abolitionist, then I kind of get like uh, an explanation about, "Oh, well, the prison system needs to be you know rehabilitated and so forth." They don't literally mean like a killer is going to just like, if I kill somebody, um, there's no consequences and then I'm able to, to walk free. In there, in most prison abolitionist circles, there is some kind of, they can call it something else. They may not call it a prison. There is some kind of apparatus that confines the individual's liberties after they have committed a crime. Maybe it's a more humanitarian apparatus. So I would say that it's not exactly what it is that they mean. That, but, that, 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 that's where I kind of get a little upset with this. But we could have kneecapped the, the slavery abolitionists the same way, right? We could have said, all right, fine, abolish slavery, but then who's going to work the farms? And they'll say, well, the people who, now who will work the farms, they'll just be paid to do it. And then we would have said, oh, but you know, what about farms that don't make a lot of money? They won't be able to pay these guys a lot of money. They'll only pay them a little money and be like, all right, then I guess, you know, pay them what they need to survive. We'll be like, isn't that just like slavery, right? And it's, and it's not, right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not great, but it's not slavery. And, and so we could, you're, we could kneecap anybody's argument by saying, you know, like, oh, if, if you can't, if, if you have to explain it in more than two sentences, somehow you're, you know, you're not the thing you say. But I, I don't think that's the case, right? I mean, you know, like even with slavery, right? Like I think slavery was succeeded by sh the sharecropping system, course, which yeah. was just, you know, very also a horrendous, yeah, yeah, really bad, horrendous system. And this is where, this is where, you know, saying what you mean and having a very detailed plan about what you mean really comes in handy because you want to avoid the next sharecropping system. That, that, and that's, that's kind of where you want to talk with the prison abolitionist and be like, what exactly is it that you mean? And if you really, if you believe that prison should function more in the Nordic model or more in a rehabilitative thing, then why not just call yourself, I'm a, I'm a prison rehabilitationist or I'm a you know, prison reformer or, or use language that isn't quite as extreme, but more encompassing of the thoughts that you're actually trying to articulate. And I think, I think that that's helpful to do, or it could just be, it could just be that you walk up to somebody and say, here's how I think prisons should be changed, or here's how I think, here's, uh, here's what I think we should do with criminals. I think that those kind of conversations bear much more fruit than the most extreme version of like prison should be abolished. And then, you know, a whole argument ensues. And then we, in, we untangle what exactly that means. I think just starting off from the bat and saying, hey, here's how I think pr prison should be changed. It's just, it's a much more fruitful conversation and much more true of what it is that you're trying to get at. Right. But I don't think I don't think anyone's trying to argue that sharecropping is the fault of the abolitionists. No, 
right? Like, so, so I don't get why, uh, I, I, I don't get, I, I guess I, I guess I'm lost here. Like why, why would what comes after prisons be the fault of prison abolitionists? Why, it, it, no, if anything, and, and again, we're, we're assuming that, that people working towards a, a single goal don't have, you know, that, that they either, on the one hand, you're, you're faulting them for trying to sum it up in one sentence. And then on the other, you're saying if they have to explain it somehow, they're, they're negating their, their proposition. Okay, let, let me explain. Let's yeah. say tomorrow, Sing Sing, Rikers, all the prisons were closed. Sure. All of them were closed down. What next? That, that would be the, the question on everybody's mind. That's why they have to explain what exactly it means by prison abolition. Because sure. if tomorrow, if we literally took them at their word, if, if, we, if I was just following the label without sniffing any further, ab sure. abolish prison, we close down Sing Sing, close down Rikers, close down all of these prisons, what to do with some of these folk? You know, maybe some of them we could just let free and everything would be fine. Others, probably not so. Sure. so that's why I'm demanding more beyond the, that's why I'm demanding more beyond the label, basically. Sure, but, but I mean, prison abolitionists have answers to it, right? That people have written books on this. This is a huge intellectual thing. The, and the fact that people have answers to this question doesn't make them any less a prison abolitionist. Right. The so I I I guess I'm maybe maybe I've I've lost the thread here, but uh, I know you wanted to talk about uh, the evolution of labels over time, and we haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I almost feel like this is like a, a second part over here. Yeah, you know, and all you know, a lot of labels change change over time. So we 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 could call ourselves something in one decade, and and it slowly means. Um, something else in another decade, you know, like, you know, any of the, any of these words like capitalism, like law, like, for example, I, if we use the word capitalism, right, well, that, you know, laissez-faire capitalism was a lot different uh, in the 19th century than it was in the 20th century and mm -hmm. then in the 21st century. And, and the same thing, same evolutionary growth applies to socialism as well, right? I think all a of a these, lot of, all a of lot these, the things that we consider capitalist today are that we consider these things the you know the bare minimum of a capitalist economy that would have been socialist to our grandparents and our great grandparents yeah so there's evolution in all of these ideas in all of these forms and that's why i kind of and, and they're also very like contingent on the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves entrenched in you know like we are our viewpoints change you know there, there might be times where we need higher taxation sometimes we lower taxes you know the, the you know the interest rate change all of these things mm -hmm. fluctuate so greatly and what you really want you know when you're discussing these issues and what you really want in a leader who's sitting at the helm is to be able to be very responsive. Like you want somebody that's very responsive. And I, I think of someone like uh, Hoover and Hoover may have called himself a capitalist or whatever, right? But was he a very response, a responsive person? Probably not. And that's why he got, you know, nicknamed all these like, um, you know, Dust Bowl towns got named Hoovervilles, right? Because no. he wasn't a res fundamentally responsive guy. He was like, I'm a capitalist. I'm not fluctuating with the times. And that's just my core ideology. And he went to bed with that. And then FDR comes in and he's more responsive. And, you know, it could, it could be in the reverse as well. There might be someone who has ultra, 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 you know, kind of socialist policies in place. And it's like, all right, you know, maybe, maybe we need the free market to kind of, maybe we need some more neoliberalism or some more free market policies to come in there. And I think that labels limit your responsiveness, right? And especially if that label is hearkening back to a previous time period. Eh, I, I, 
I don't, I don't agree, but I also don't want to discuss at the levels of, of implementing economic policy at, in the highest office of the world. That's right. That, that, that I think is a little bit of a different uh, scale than, than what we're talking about, which is, you know, how do I, what do I do with my own actions and what do I do with my own labor and, and how do I, how do I create the changes I want to see in the world? Uh, but it is interesting. I remember when, when the, the whole global economy crashed under Bush and he signed a, a bailout bill for trillions of dollars. And he, he kept saying, as he signed it, he kept saying, well, you know, I'm a capitalist. This is, this is really, I'm a free market capitalist and this goes against my beliefs, but I'm doing what's right for the country and, and these sorts of things. Uh, I, I don't know. Sure. I, I, in that situation, an ideologue could, somebody could be so ideological that they would never sign that sort of thing. But, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so worried about the ways that, that our labels and our ideologies apply to a, an institution that has, that there's probably no institution in the world that has more pressure on it from more sides than, than the American presidency, right? That's a, that's a whole different sort of thing. I, I'm not the American president. And so I'm, so I'm trying to figure out what should I do with my labor and how should I bring the change that I want to see into the world? And, and for me, that answer is, is to, to align, align it with uh, people who want to achieve the same goals. And if, and if, and if the best way to do that is to is to put a label on it. I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. But again, like I said, I think you know, in times of emergencies, right, and in, in times of, of like when we have to really act, right, it gives you that agency and that flexibility. And if you're let, let's just say that you really want change in this world, right, and mm-hmm. and I I can see that, man. Like I, I know that what you're saying is coming from an awesome, great place. Like I mm-hmm. I don't doubt that at all. I'm wondering though, Evan, if you just if 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 you if you believe in one thing though, right? What is so wrong with just creating the malleability and creating that space to be like, hey, I thought I really wanted to achieve this thing in this direction, but I, I just spoke with this other person and now they've kind of moved me and shifted me away from this ideology. And now I'm kind of leaning a little bit more over here. I think when you have that label, and this is kind of the last point that I I, I have for us here is you tend to see your identity within that label and you tend to take up the tribal identity and you kind of tend to ascribe some of that label to your personal identity in in, in such way. And I think this happens a lot in politics today, if, if someone calls themselves a socialist and then, and then they get into an argument with somebody, they might end up defending things that they actually, you know, that, that, that they know at some level are kind of wrong, but because they have the label, they've got to defend the whole packaging. They got to, they got to defend the whole fort and everything that comes within the fort, even if they personally don't agree with everything. Whereas if you just say, hey, I'm Evan, and, you know, I think this is a good idea, and then someone talks with you and says, okay, I think half of your idea is good. And you're like, oh, great. You know, half my idea is good. And, and we kind of get in that level. I think you're going to be a much stronger Evan by just having, having your ideas, but then realizing that as soon as, as soon as one of these ideas is proven wrong, I'm going to abandon it. I think the label prevents a lot of people from just discarding their ideas very quickly because when they do that, they feel like they're losing a part of themselves. I, man, I, I, and, and I, I'll, I'll try to wrap it up too. I, I think, I think there is potential for everybody to be an ideologue. And, and I think especially that potential grows when we talk about more complete systems, like, like a political party or a religion. And I think you and I have probably both met people who are, who are, who defend things that they shouldn't defend in the name of, of one of those, you know, huge alliances, right? 
but I don't think that potential is minimized. I think uh, by 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 rejecting labels either, right? Centrism too is its own kind of ideology, right? Centrism is is its own ideology about about who can be right and who can be wrong and what what uh, what things are are facts, right? What are the facts of history? What are the lessons we should take? Centrism is, is also its own kind of ideology, and I I would worry that uh, that all the things that you're saying, if they are true, right? Uh, could also be true of centrism as well. Again, I'm not I'm, I'm not a centrist here. There, there. Hmm. I have I have points of view that someone would be like, "Whoa, that's a really conservative thought, Aaron." And then I have other points of view that some people would be like, "Whoa, you're you're left." You know, I, I always joke around with people that you know the conservatives think I'm too liberal and the liberals think I'm too con- you know. And I'm like, I'm not trying to just stick to the middle lane. I'm not I'm not just trying to be the middle lane here. It it's it, my 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 points of view are more of a like ink blot painting. They're, they're just scattered all over the place. And over time, these dots move. Like the, like the dots don't stay static. They're just constantly moving around and so forth. So I think if you're a centrist, you're, you're again, like, like, like we started this discussion off, you're basically putting your boots in the middle. It's just some imaginary median, right? Whereas I'm just saying, you know, be, be an open canvas and your dots move around depending on where new information and depending on where context takes you. I like that sentiment a lot. I I don't think it's ruled out by uh by labels, but I do like that sentiment a lot. All right. Evan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thank you for having me, man. This was a pleasure. This concludes the 89th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.